it was nice to uh, get an invite to come here tonight. Um, it's good that Dave trusts me enough to step in for him in his absence. Either that or everybody he knows is really busy. And he had to get to the bottom of the barrel. If I was to ask you a question, how many decisions you have made today, you would probably struggle to count it up in your head. Because from the minute we get up in the morning, to the minute we go to bed, we're making decisions, we're making choices constantly throughout the day. Just over a week ago, I was in a coffee shop. It was in the morning. I just dropped the kids off to school and I just happened to find myself in a coffee shop. And there was this woman standing beside me in the queue and she was standing just looking at the board with just a glazed look. And the guy behind the counter, he comes up and says, yes, madam, can I help you? What would you like? And she just went, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't decide. And she was really, really struggling to make a decision of whether she needed a latte or a cappuccino. That was, that was the decision she was trying to make, but she couldn't make up her mind. And it turned out that the guy behind the counter, myself and the woman herself, had this three-way discussion that we felt she definitely needed a cappuccino. If it was that bad, a latte just wasn't going to cut it. So for that woman, what coffee to have was a huge decision. Most of the decisions we make each day are minor. Either what socks we put on or whether we'll wear this t-shirt or that jumper or whatever. They're not that big a deal. But there is times in our life where the decisions we make can change the course of how we live. They can change the direction of where our life goes. Sometimes things like what we study at university or what job we take or where we live or who we marry or if we should marry. And all these things can have a massive impact on our lives. But for those who are believers in Christ, they would probably say that the greatest decision that they ever made, the biggest life-changing decision that they ever made, was the decision to follow Christ, to make that commitment, to stop leading lives their way, and to give it over to Christ. And the Bible teaches us that is what happens when we give our lives to Christ, when we step out for him. It will change our lives. Things will never be the same again. That is the very reason why we have church and churches. It's a group of believers coming together to worship God and walk that journey together. Now, in these verses, the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to a group of believers. It's a new church it's a young church, and they were formed as an offshoot from Ephesus. There was a guy, Epaphras, who was commissioned by Paul, and he went back to Colossae, which was this quite sort of trendy cosmopolitan city, and started this church of believers. And it was very much flourishing. There was a number of people meeting together, many new believers coming and joining them. But the reality was this group of believers was being challenged daily in the choices that they made. It wasn't choices about what coffee they would have or what socks they would wear. It was about what they believed was true, what they believed should be part of what they do in their Christian faith, part of what they do in church, and the things that they needed to turn away from. And if you read through the first part of Colossians, you'll see that there is false teaching 
in the church. There's superstitions, there's mysticism, astrology, philosophy, legalism. All these things were coming into the church. All these new ways of thinking, all these new ways of living were challenging these believers in how they would live for Christ. They had choices to make. And Paul in chapter 1 of Colossians reminds them, he reminds them of who Christ is. That he is the one who bought their salvation. He is the one through him they must focus on and they must follow. He reminds them of the relationship and the hope that they have in this person, Jesus. That he is the one that rescued them from their old life in sin and brought them into a new life, living for God as part of of his kingdom. And Paul then goes on to explain what it means to receive Christ, to be a Christian, to live for him. And these verses that we've look, we're looking at this evening, he talks about what is salvation. And he explains for the people, for the believers, what this salvation is. And more importantly, he gives three things that they need to remember about their salvation. There's nothing that he was saying here that was new. They would have heard all of this before. And as we look at these verses here tonight, there'd be nothing that you won't have heard of before. But the reality is sometimes we need to be reminded what we have in Christ Jesus. And the first thing we see that Paul talks about in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 is that salvation has a cost salvation has a cost that having received christ the reality is what happens next one thing that some people feel once they get saved they feel it that's the point they have crossed the line they're secure in christ they can relax well that's not what paul is saying here and he's reminding the believers of it in verse 6 he said, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's reminding them, you come to Christ, you're now starting on a journey. You're now beginning something new. It's not a done deal where everything is now finished. This is the start. And he's telling people to walk with him. We're to walk in a relationship with Christ Jesus. And the reality of that is, for anyone who's a Christian will tell you, that's hard work. That's hard work. For many people, the cost of following Christ can be immense. They can lose friends over it. They can create a lot of enemies through it. Sometimes it can cause divisions in families. Sometimes it can cause people difficulties in their workplace and even hamper their career path. For some believers in certain parts of the world, their lives can be at risk. But the reality for all of us is our faith in Christ has a cost. But Paul goes on to remind us, how do we do this? How do we walk in faith? We see in verse 7, he says that we are rooted and built up in him as you were taught. We have to be rooted and built up in him. Christ Jesus He's the source of where we need to draw on. There's nothing else we need, no other thing in this world where we need to focus on for our faith. 
Nowhere else where we need to get our strength from. He says, be built up in him as you were taught. We meet here together and a key part is studying God's word, reading God's word. It's so important that we know what God's word teaches because that is where our strength comes from. And Paul is reminding them that they need to feed on the truth of God's word. The things that they learn, the things that they're taught is important because that is where their life comes from. That is where they feed on the source of God's word, the person of Christ Jesus. And the result of this, we see also in verse 7, that they are established in the faith. That Christ is the foundation of who they are and what they believe. Now where I live, I live quite close to this new cycle route right around through Belfast. There's a bit of it I walk each day with the kids taking them to school. And last spring, the gardeners were there and they were planting all these little trees, landscaping all this garden. And there's all these little seedlings, dozens of them, planting them all around the place. And I remember looking at them and thinking, they have no chance. They have no chance of surviving. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, every one of those little seedlings was broken crushed, pulled up, destroyed because two or three idiots running about were able just to destroy the whole lot. They weren't strong enough. They weren't established. But yet, again, on a road just beside where I live, there's big, big trees about this size. And I wonder how often these same guys have tried to think, I'm going to knock that tree down. Or I'm going to kick that over. I'm going to stamp on that. And the reality is, they could tear away and hit this tree as hard as they can. Stamp on it, kick it, do what they like. The reality is, there's only going to be one winner, and that's the tree. That tree's going nowhere. Why? Because it's established. There's nothing that can touch it. There's nothing really that can move it. Over the years, I've seen cars plowing into the tree, and the car just falls around it. Because the tree is established, it's rooted, and it's built up. And this is what Paul is saying that we need to be as believers. We need to be not like a little seedling. Yes, we all start there, but we need to put the roots down. We need to grow strong in God's word, feed in the truth, and then become established. So it doesn't matter these issues that come against us. It doesn't matter what we have to deal with in life, because we will have to deal with them but we'll be strong enough to stand against it. We'll be strong enough to stand fast in our faith. And the fruit of that was the fruit of an established tree. Well, in every established tree, you can see it. Something there to show for it. What is it to show for it in the believer? In verse 7, that we can be abounding in thanksgiving. Now, it's easy to praise God in the good times. It's easy to praise God when things are going well. But it takes a maturity in our faith to be able to praise God, to be able to worship God in those times where we're really finding it difficult. In those times where we're going through struggles, where we're maybe finding opposition, where we're finding temptation. It's in that place, in that time, where the fruit of our faith really 
really shows that we are abounding in thanksgiving. And there's nowhere in Scripture where it promises that following Christ will be an easy life. In fact, if we see in verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive. Now, this is a term which was used in military of trying to take the enemy captive. So what Paul is trying to give here is a sense that they are in the middle of a conflict, that they're in the middle of a battle. To live for Christ, they're in a battle. And what sort of things are they battling? Well, as I had already said in verse 1, it comes again here in verse 8. Philosophy, empty deceit, human traditions, elemental spirits, all these things. Now, you may look at those and think, well, what's the reality of that today? What, what sort of things were they dealing with that we could apply today? We think, take the first sort of traditions. There's so many traditions and culture of which we are trying to be molded into in our society. They say, you have to be this, you have to be this. Even church culture sometimes is so challenging. We need to do it like this, or we can't do it like that. Oh, the way they do it, that's wrong. The way they do it, that's right. We've all this conflict. Again, all these decisions that we have to make. We live in a world that's filled with superstitions. You open any magazine or newspaper, you'll see the horoscopes. You turn on the TV channels, or even on the, the poster billboards, and you'll see these guys, these mediums, these men and women, who will tell you that they can, on your behalf, contact the spirit world and contact people who you once knew. It's all deception. But so often our culture is pushing these things and pushing us to conform and believe. Even a lot of the moral issues that are coming up now, of the def- even the very definition of what marriage is, is now being brought to the church. And we're being asked to make a choice and to make a stand for what we believe is right. Following Christ, there's a cost. There's a cost to salvation. But a good thing is, we see in verses 9 to 13, that our salvation is permanent. In verse 9, Paul challenges the people. He says to him, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's talking about Christ Jesus. And he's saying like, this person, Christ Jesus, this, this is what you have. Why would you be tempted by anything else? As believers, we have Christ, the very expression of God in the form of man. And it goes on to say, the authority of God dwells in him. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. And this authority of God dwells in him. Verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This person Christ is like no one else. No one else there has ever been. The authority that was in Christ was over anything in this world. Verse 10 reminds us, you have been filled in him. As believers, we are united with Christ. So the authority of God that was in Christ, where is it now? It now dwells 
in us. So the reality is, as we go through these struggles, as we come against this opposition, there's nothing in that world that can overcome the Christ that dwells within us. And that's, that's something we can say and believe in with, with confidence. Because in our lives, in every situation, when we're feeling under pressure, when we're feeling we can't go on, we've got to remember the ultimate authority lies in Christ. What we have in Him is stronger and greater and more powerful and above anything that this world can throw at us. And that's an amazing thing for us to cling to. But it's not something that comes for its season and passes on. Because Paul then goes on to remind them that this is a permanent thing. Once Christ is in us, once we're united with him, that authority that dwells within us is a permanent change. He uses the illustration of circumcision. Circumcision, it's something that's a physical act that was done to God's people. It was something that set them apart as belonging to God. And he is saying that we are circumcised. Something happens to us when we come to Christ that sets us apart as belonging to him. Circumcision is permanent. Once it was done, it wasn't able to be reversed. When someone was circumcised and came in to God's people, that was it. They were always part of God's people. When we come to Christ, the Bible tells us that we are circumcised. Something permanent happens to us. We are changed. We are no longer the same. But it's not a physical thing. It's spiritual. It's of God. It's a circumcision of our hearts. The sinful hearts that we had before Christ, Paul's telling us, they're cut away. That, that old part of your life, it's gone. It's removed. And we're now brought in to a relationship with God. We're brought into God's covenant people, united with the person of Christ. In verses 12 and 13, he reminds them of why they have baptism. Baptism means to dip. And it's one of those things that we practice it doesn't actually physically do anything to us, but what it does is it helps us to identify with Christ in what he did for us through his death and resurrection. When we're baptized, it demonstrates the authority of God over death. The Holy Spirit lives within us. It identifies us as belonging with the person of Christ. What that means that means like when Christ was buried, we were buried together with him. When he was raised, we were raised together with him. The new life that he had in his resurrection is the new life that we have in him. Christ in us gives us a new life, makes us a part of a people permanently that can never be taken away. The promise that we have in him is something that's eternal. The Bible reminds us what Christ did wasn't just for this earth. 
It was so that we would be permanently united with him. Our old past is removed. The sins that we had that separated us from God are forgiven through Christ. Not just the sins that we have done, but the sins that we still do. Even the sins that we will do in the future. Because the reality is, we still live in a sinful world. We're still sinful and broken by nature. We will sin. But the work of Christ covered that. Christ Jesus has done it all. There's nothing left to be done in regard to our salvation. And we see that in our final point in verses 14 and 15, that salvation is perfect. The reality is we're all in debt to God. We're all under a debt to God's law that we couldn't keep. We fall well short. The holy standard that God set out, we can't meet it. We can't even come close. But we see here in verse 14, he talks about cancelling the record of debt. So the debt that we have that we cannot pay has been cancelled by God. But it's not by God forgetting about it. It's not by God pushing it to the side. We often get letters through our door and you look and you know if it's got one of those clear windows in it, it's probably not a good thing because chances are it could be a bill. Now what I tend to do, I'll sort of set them over on a wee pile, I have a wee special pile that I'll set those things on and you forget about it for a while, you forget about it for a week or two and that's great. But it hasn't gone away. I can push it to the side. I can ignore it as much as I like even when the other reminders come. But the bottom line is there will come a day when I will have to be accountable for my debt. It may even be in front of a judge in court if it's a serious debt. But a debt has to be paid. God hasn't cancelled our debt by ignoring it and pushing it to the side, hoping it will go away. He didn't ignore the law. But our debt was cancelled by Christ Jesus paying the price. Our debt was paid by him on the cross. The law that condemns us was taken out of the way and not taken out of the way and hidden and ignored, but it was taken out of the way. We see in verse 14, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When Christ was nailed to the cross over 2,000 years ago, the amazing thing is the debt for our sins, the debt for all the things that we have done wrong was nailed on that cross with Christ. What separates us from God? That sin, that law that we have broken is fulfilled for us in Christ. He has paid our debt. It has been wiped clean. And the reality is for so, so many of us that we sometimes forget that. And we try by the people that we are and the actions that we do is to make ourselves right with God. To try and acquire this level of righteousness within ourselves that we might be worthy to be seen as one of God's people. But we can't do it. 
There's nothing else for us to add to salvation. And sometimes that is the lies and the deceit that the enemy reminds us of. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be going to church. How could you possibly call yourself a follower of Christ? How could you possibly say you're a Christian? Look at you. Look at the sin in your life. And it works. It works when Satan speaks to us. We, we can believe it because we can see it in our own lives. But the reality is we don't need to think that way. Because it is lies. As we see on verse 15, that the cross was a victory for us. Not just because our debt was paid, but a victory over Satan. Because it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. The law of God that Satan uses to accuse us of how unworthy we are. That was the weapon that he had. It was the only weapon he had. And it was a good one. That was taken out of his hand at the cross. Because that was no longer relevant anymore. Keeping the law was not the standard by which we needed to live. Accepting Christ and his forgiveness on the cross was what we needed to do. Satan can't condemn us anymore. In light of the cross, he has absolutely nothing or no hold over us. And he even goes on to say that he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In ancient times, what was the norm was when one king defeated another, the defeated king was paraded before the people of the victorious king to let everyone see him in his defeat, in his shame, to exalt the king that had the victory over the one that had been defeated. And that's what Paul is describing here happened at the cross. Satan was shamed, he was defeated, and Christ was exalted. In his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, Christ was glorified with his Father in heaven, and Satan was defeated. And this is the salvation we have. When we came to Christ, when we gave our lives to him, this is the fullness of what he'd done for us. And the reality is, to follow Christ, accepting this salvation, it does have a price. It's costly. It may cost us anything we have, everything we have, but it's greater than any cost that we could have to pay because it's something that's permanent. The work that Christ does in us, the promises that he has for us, the authority that dwells within us is something that's permanent in our union with Christ. And it's a work of salvation that is perfect. There's nothing for us to add. There's nothing more for us to do or earn or contribute. We just simply need to come and surrender to Christ Jesus. It's something beautiful. It's something perfect. For those of us who are believers, it's something to celebrate. It's something that we can cling to and live day by day. For those who don't know Christ, who don't have that assurance, what more 
could anyone need? What more could anyone desire than having the Christ over all things liveth in them? Making them right, bringing them to a place where they're reconciled with God, giving them authority over anything that this world can throw at them in a life change that's permanent and perfect. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for what Christ did for us on the cross. And Lord, I pray that in those times where we struggle, in those times we doubt, that Lord, you'll just help us to focus on the cross and remember that you have done it all, that perfect work. Lord, if we're seeking to have fullness in our lives, again, may we realize that it is found only at the cross of Jesus. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you, God, for sending your Son to die for us, to buy back our redemption and pay our debt. Thank you, God. Amen.